We're going to continue this morning in our digitally remastered series. And again, we are talking about this just to remind you because you come in on a Sunday morning and say, why are we talking about technology? Why are we talking about, why are we doing this on a Sunday morning? Why am I going to church and hearing about this? Maybe you're thinking that, maybe you're not. Just to remind you, here's why we're doing it. Because at Mount Hope, we believe that God, our, our two biggest things in our lives are to worship and love God and to love our neighbors. That's the two biggest commandments. Those are the two biggest things God has called us to do. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the reality is, there are a lot of things in our world that often get in the way of living out those two commands. And some of those things we don't even recognize are happening to us and keeping us from fulfilling those commands the way God would want us to. And one of those things that affects all of our lives all of the relationships we have, the relationship you have with God and the relationship you have with people around you is the relationship you and I have with technology. And this is affecting all of our relationships and how we relate to one another. And so that's why we're talking about this on a Sunday morning for a few weeks. So the first week we said, uh, we, we reminded, we talked about what is okay becomes not okay when it no longer needs your okay. We said that the first week. We said this technology that's in your life and my life, it used to be that it had to get some kind of okay to influence you, to, to have an effect on you, but it no longer needs that. I just look and it has influenced me. I can see a notification and all of a sudden my mind has been impacted, changed and set in a certain direction. It no longer needs your okay in order to influence you. So we talked about that and, and how we need to be careful about that. We talked about a technology fast and uh, maybe you uh, have done that or maybe you need to do that. Last week we said to find real relationship with God and with others, you've gotta come out of hiding. That our digital world uh, just kind of accelerates our natural inclination to hide from each other and to hide from God. We have this natural inclination within us. I don't want you to see the stuff about me that's unattractive. You don't want me to see the stuff about you and none of us want God to see it. And so we hide from each other and we're not honest with each other. And so we're not known by each other and we're not known, even we think we're not known by God because we hide ourselves from God. But we said, you cannot have real relationship with people or with God if we continue to distance ourselves and hide from each other. This week, we're looking at a little different topic uh, when it comes to our relationship with technology. And let me start by uh, talking about it this way. I want to start by talking about tribes and how we look for and find our tribes. We weren't able to do it this past summer, but for the last couple of summers, my family and I would go down to Baltimore, Maryland to catch a Red Sox game at Camden Yards. And we do this just because it's a fun trip and also because it's a cheaper ticket than going to Fenway Park and, and Camden Yards is a really nice stadium. For those of you that love Fenway, I would just say go to one of the new stadiums and you will say blow up Fenway. That's all I'm saying. I love it. I've been there, but I also like legroom and I'm not even that tall. So, but you go to these new parks and so we go down there, we take a trip down there, we go to a game. And part of the fun part is being in a hotel with a bunch of other Boston people who also have gone down 
to do the same thing and watch a game, right? And I remember the first year we did this, we really didn't know we were going to encounter this phenomenon. So we're out in the pool and we're swimming and all of a sudden someone starts talking about, you know, this town that was the next town over from us. And then the other person starts talking about where they're from. And then it's like all this talk about New England and the Red Sox and every, and we're all kind of connecting there in this pool in the middle of Baltimore, Maryland. And we found this little tribe, right? You know, you've been there, right? Where, where all of a sudden you don't expect it necessarily, but you find people who are like you in a place that may be unusual. I've seen it happen in this church. Some of you have come here and you're, you're from another country and you think, well, no one else is like me. And then you start, you encounter someone on a Sunday morning who's from the same place as you or near you and you connect and you start talking and, and perhaps your native language and it feels like, oh, this is my tribe. These are my people. And there's something about that, something about us that wants to be a part of a tribe, that is a part of a tribe. And technology, one of the good things about it, it has helped us to connect with our tribes quicker and better than ever before. Perhaps you are into maybe an obscure band or you are into an obscure hobby and you think no one else I know is into this. No one else I know likes this band. No one else I know has this hobby. And then you go online, then the internet comes along. And you're like, here's all these people who are like me. Here's all the, you know, I thought I was strange. I thought I was a weird one, right? And then here's all these other people that like the same thing I like. And it has helped us connect in some ways with tribes like never before. But here's the flip side of that coin. The flip side of that coin is that the internet and technology and digital media and communication is so good at helping us connect with our tribes that it keeps us from connecting with people who are outside of our tribe. That it starts to insulate us to be only around people and interact only with people more and more who are like us that it keeps us from interacting and it certainly doesn't promote us interacting with those who are unlike us. And the problem with this is that if you're a Christian, that this is not the life that God has called us to live, that we are often called as Christians to interact with people who are outside of our circle and our tribe. Like this is the whole exporting of the gospel. To export, to, to interact with people who are different than you. And yet our world and our technology is causing us to interact only with people who are like us. I'm not the only one saying this. These are technology people that are saying this all the time. Uh, Eli Pariser in a 2011 TED Talk, he said it this way. He said, the internet is showing what it thinks we want to see but not necessarily what we need to see. And, and he, in his talk, he introduces a concept of what happens in our technological world. He calls it filter bubbles. And he says what happens is what the internet does, what technology does, what these companies like Google and Facebook and these other social media companies, and that what they do is they target your interest, they filter everything out that's not your interest that would take you away from the screen, and they start to put you in a bubble to interact with people and with things that are interesting to you and that interest you and that are like you. 
And this happens more and more and more. And sometimes we think, oh, well, that's helpful. And sometimes it is. But there's a flip side of that coin. You know, it used to be when I was growing up, and, and probably, you, you know, you too. You know, you'd turn on Channel 4, and you'd watch the news. And if I turned it on in my house, and you turned it on in your house, we're watching the same news story. And we're seeing the same story, and we're seeing the same information. And you do that today, and it still happens. Or if I get the globe delivered to my house, and you get the globe delivered to your house, you open up the paper, we're reading the same paper, seeing the same headlines, seeing the same stories, in the same way, in the same way. We might disagree with them. I might think one thing about them. You think another thing. But at least we're looking at the same stories. Not so anymore. And we don't even always realize it's happening. Pariser did this experiment, as he talks about in his TED Talk. He told his friends, he had some friends, he said, around the country, he said, type the word Egypt into your Google search bar, search, and then just take a screenshot of what comes up. And what he found out was that he would get these screenshots from his different friends, and typing the same search came up with various and vastly different results. That for one friend, it came up tourist destinations, places to visit in Egypt. For another friend, it came up social unrest, political things that are going on in the country. Typing in the same word to the same search engine, getting different results, seeing different stories. If I open up my YouTube app and you open up your YouTube app, you know what's going to happen. You're not going to see the same videos I see. I'm not going to see the same videos you see. Depending on what you've searched in the past, depending on what, you know, YouTube sees, you're going to say, you're going to like this video, and then you're going to like this video, and then you're going to like this video. And we are suddenly put into these filter bubbles of saying, this is what you're interested in, and you should just stay on what you're interested in. Mark Zuckerberg, chairman, uh, CEO, founder of Facebook, said this is the reason that uh, often this happens. He said, Mark said, a squirrel dying in your front yard may be more relevant to your interests right now than people dying in Africa. And we read that quote and we say, not only is that sad, that's, that's horrible. I, I, had to, I had to look, I had to look, I'm like, did he actually say this? But this is how news stories are often being cultivated and curated and put before us. Here's what you're interested in. Here's what you've clicked on before. Here, here's your bubble. Stay in your bubble. Go after what you're interested in. And it keeps us from interacting oftentimes with things and people who are outside of our bubble. I mean, am I the only one feeling the division that we feel in our country, in our world right now? And we, in some ways, say, well, we always divided. In some ways, we were, but not like now. It's different now. It feels different now. And I can't help but think that some of this is related to this. I mean, the last, just take, for example, the Supreme Court justices that recently got confirmed. Along party lines, really, in large part. And to some of us, we say, oh, that's normal. Like, that's, that's what happens. That's what, that's what always happens, like confirmed along party lines. But then you go back. I was shocked to learn some of the history of the Supreme Court justices. That Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was confirmed to the Supreme Court in 1983, was confirmed with a 96 to 3 vote of the U.S. Senate. 
just a few years, actually, that, that she was in 86. 83, I think, was Antonin Scalia. I may have my years wrong there, but these two people. Antonin Scalia, a few years earlier than Ruth, on the exact opposite end of the political ideological lens, is approved by the U.S. Senate 98 to 0. And I can't even imagine that happening today. The idea that the U.S. Senate would approve someone 98 to 0 for the Supreme Court justice seems like an A-track tape or a carriage and a buggy to me. Like, it is so antiquated. I can't even imagine that happening. And yet it wasn't that long ago that we were able to disagree without being divided. That we were able to somehow have engagement with each other without it causing us to completely disregard the other person. And here's the reality. Tribes are often fine, but tribalism is not. Tribes are often fine. We find ourselves in tribes. We put ourselves in tribes. We're always going to do that. But tribalism, when we start elevating our tribe and saying not only that, but somehow my tribe is, not, is better and somehow you are lesser, not only in a different tribe or think differently, but you are like a lesser person. I don't need to treat you with the same respect. I don't need to treat you with the same, uh, you know, dignity that I would treat someone within my tribe because you're outside my tribe. That's tribalism. I start to think of you as something less than human, less than a person, less important than the person who's in my tribe. Tribes are often fine, but tribalism becomes a problem. And I think our current digital place is pushing us more and more into tribalism. More, you stay in your tribe, you stay in your bubble, you stay in your circle, don't reach out. You don't need to, you don't need to go out there. And you know what these people think? These people think this. So you don't wanna, you don't wanna interact with them. And we're more and more divided. And yet the gospel would tell us You've got to interact with people who are different than you. You've got to interact with people of a different tribe. Jesus spoke to this in, in a place that we don't often think of maybe with this topic, but the parable of the Good Samaritan. Parable of the Good Samaritan is really a place, I think, where Jesus spoke to this idea that speaking to a man and illustrating and showing him, you've fallen into a way of thinking that is not a godly way of thinking. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think a better title would be the parable of the curious lawyer. Because it's not really about a Samaritan. In fact, the Samaritan's a, a fictional character in the parable. It's the lawyer that's the real crux of the issue. Because it's a lawyer that comes up to Jesus and asks him a question. If you had the chance to ask Jesus a question, what would you ask him? You might ask him this, because it's a perfect question for Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Like, that's a great question. And there's no better person to ask it to than Jesus. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus responds. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer says, Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Like, you're there. That's it. Love God. Love your neighbor. 
But this lawyer was caught up in tribalism. And so his next question brings that out, because his next question is, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, who don't I have to love? Like, who's outside the circle? Who's outside the tribe? Because he's probably thinking, this Jewish man, I've got Roman neighbors. I don't have to love them, right? Because they oppress us. Because they take advantage of us. Because they've taken over our nation. Because they steal from us. Like, I don't have to love them, right? He's probably thinking, there are other people in my life that I don't really want to and need. God doesn't expect me to love these people. Tribalism. So Jesus illustrates to him the mindset that he cannot see in himself. So he tells him this parable. He said, a man, Jesus says in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem. This is in response to the question of who is my neighbor? Who, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Now, pause here for a second, because here's the deal with the priest and the Levite. This lawyer would have identified, these are his friends. The lawyer would, would have been a religious leader. Like the priests and the Levites, he probably had dinner with them last night. Like these are his people. This is his tribe. He understands these people. Like these are the ones he hangs out. These are the ones he looks for their approval. These are the ones he would be in relationship with. But they're ascribed a certain level of dignity, but they don't act in love. And then he says, Jesus, but a Samaritan <clears throat> as he journeyed. And just pause there for a second. A Samaritan. So Samaritans were uh, looked on by the Jewish people at this time as uh, literal half-breeds. They had... had uh, married and intermarried <clears throat> outside of their family, outside of their clan, outside of the nation. They were looked on as literally less than human. They were animals. They were, they were, not, they, they were, they were not treated with any respect in this time. They were just considered total outsiders. They don't have any civilized way of living. They don't worship God, right? And so this lawyer, he heard, but a Samaritan. I mean, his, he would immediately be like, ah, oh. like something raises up a Samaritan, right? <clears throat> so what does Jesus say next? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii. And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever you more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asks, proved, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. And in this passage, I think one of the things Jesus is bringing out is here's what you don't realize, lawyer. <laughs> you say you love God and you say you love your neighbor, but you have not even realized that your thinking has been so affected. There's been a nurtured cultural bias within you 
that has so impacted your thinking that it's causing you to not love people God has called you to love. That your world has been so filtered, so closed in, so penned in, that your thinking has impacted your ability to show love to people that God is calling you to show love to. Not simply a robber, or not simply a man on the side of the road who was robbed, but even a Samaritan. That you can't even say his name, that you can't even think that that person would do something good. Now what Jesus isn't doing here, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't care about truth. I'm not saying everyone, your truth and my truth, and it's all the same. Jesus isn't saying that. He's not talking about that. He's not measuring truths and right and wrong. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, where do you draw the bounds on who you love? Where is your boundary when it comes to, I will go this far and love this person, but no further. I will not show love to that person. And I think the digital age that we live in is doing the exact same thing to us. It's curating these relationships, creating these cultural biases within us that is saying, here's who you are, here's who you like, here's who you love. And we don't even realize that it's happening. We don't even realize that it's happening. And so we fail to show love to those who aren't a part of our world. Jesus didn't do this in his ministry. We're called to be like Jesus. We're called to be like God. That's the life we're called to be. And here's the problem with tribalism. You are most like God when you love those who are least like you. You are most like God when you love those who are least like you. Think about how God loved you. God loved you as a sinner, living as an enemy of God, without even knowledge that you needed to be saved. You're nothing like God. I'm nothing like the holy God that he is. And God loved me. And I am most like God when I love those who are least like me. But if I stay in my tribe, and I stay in my bubble, I will never reach out and love those who are least like me. We do it even within the church. Now, let me be perfectly clear on something. You have more in common with the Christian who voted differently than you a couple weeks ago than you do with the non-Christian who voted the same as you. But we have somehow drawn lines we have somehow allowed tribalism to come in between us. The Christian that voted differently than you believes in the same God, believes the same things about the world that we live in and eternity and where we're going and where this all is going and the same plan. And yet we allow tribalism to get in even in the church and separate us. I mean, that's to say nothing about outside of the church. Jesus didn't have this in his ministry. One of the passages of Jesus that I think we read over quickly and we don't even pay much attention to is when it names his disciples that he chooses. In Matthew chapter 10, we have an account of Jesus, of the, uh, Jesus choosing his apostles. And it says this, the names of the 12 apostles are these. 
First Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Everything's good so far. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Let's make sure we know Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And in 2020, you and I read that list, and you say, nice, great, nice list, good. But if you were in the first century reading this and you heard Matthew the tax collector, see the tax collectors were in line and in league with the Roman government. They collected taxes for Rome, they sent them to Rome, but they made their living by collecting taxes beyond what was owed. And they took whatever they wanted from their fellow neighbors, family, loved ones, they just took it. It was legalized stealing, it was the mob, it was the mafia, they had the entire Roman government behind them. They could do whatever they wanted and they were looked at as traitors and collaborators with an oppressive government. And Jesus says to Matthew, the tax collector, come, follow me. And he says to Simon, the zealot. Now the zealots, zealots were the exact opposite. They hated Rome. They had such an allegiance to their nation, such an allegiance to their, to their, uh, their religion and their nation that they hated the Roman government and they hated anyone who would collaborate with it. In fact, they would start a holy war with anyone who collaborated with the Roman government. You were less than human. You were not a part of our nation. You were a traitor. You were to not be respected or treated with any amount of respect. That's the way the zealots were. They were zealous for their own nation and their own God. And Jesus says to Simon the Zealot, come follow me. And somehow Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector followed Jesus together. And as they become more like Jesus, they start to love one another and serve his purposes and his mission. You are most like God when you love those least like you. And so all I'm saying today, and honestly, we went back and forth on this message as pastors because we said, this is something none of us see. We just don't believe it. We just don't think it happens to us. We just don't, we think it's other people. We don't think it's us. We think, I have a diverse, you know, set of friends. I know whatever, I, I have all kinds of, we just think it's not us, it's someone else. And yet, the world around us is trying to curate you and put you in a group that says, just care about the people who have the same interest to you. Just like the people who are like you. And when we do that, we miss one of the greatest truths of the gospel that God loves us when we are not like him. And that he calls us to love those who are not like us. That that is your mission as a part of the church. That is what you're called to do. How can you bring someone in if you never go out? Our music team, our worship team is gonna come back. Let me close, I'm gonna close with them quick illustration and then a question from Jesus. Matt Chandler, who pastored the Village Church in Dallas, Texas, said uh, one day he was out in the hallway of his church, thousands of people, and he heard these people talking. And they said, I'm so glad we're not one of those stuffy suit and tie churches. 
I'm so glad we're a jeans church and not a stuffy suit and tie church. And Chandler got so upset at this comment, he went up to the, the, the stage that morning and he railed against them. He said, how can you say that? Don't you understand what you're doing? You are putting yourself in just another box. What do you think the suit and tie church is saying? They're saying, I'm so glad we're not the jeans church. We really, we're the godly ones, right? <laughs> And we put ourselves in these silly boxes. We just jump out of one box and jump into another box so we can exclude those who are outside the tribe. And we just love those who are like us. And into that place and into that space, Jesus says this, as recorded by Matthew, the tax collector. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have?